0: This evening I'm going to talk about Great Doubt. We started on Monday by looking at Great Faith, which is the first of a triad of of values, of principles, Mm -hmm. that support and contextualise the practice of uh, song or Zen. Great Doubt is the second... And uh, on Friday, I'll talk about great courage. I'm going to begin with a fairly well-known aphorism that uh, my own teacher used to cite uh, quite often. And it goes, great doubt, great awakening, little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. I've always been very struck by this idea. And the idea, I think, that is being presented here is that your awakening, or let's put this more simply, your understanding, your insight into anything, ...somehow correlates with the quality of your questioning. In other words, if your questioning resonates at a particular pitch... ...whatever insight you gain as a result will also resonate at that same pitch... Now I know I'm speaking slightly abstractly and metaphorically here. Great doubt, great awakening. The word great has to do with um, what in some of the Zen texts they describe as the great matter of birth and death. In other words, if you question, if you are concerned about what it means to live and die and that concern becomes a real uh, passion for you it becomes something you just can't leave aside it becomes a matter of great urgency then the urgency, the intensity and as we've seen on this retreat the, the physicality experiencing doubt or questioning or perplexity within your body that somehow seizes you with uh, this deep, ultimate concern, that such doubt, such questioning, will then be capable of triggering or leading to an insight, an understanding, an awakening, an enlightenment, that likewise operates at that same existential pitch. In other words, the kind of insight or answer that might arise is not something that can necessarily just be formulated in in some clever um, sentence or, 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 or piece of text. But rather it's an insight that finds form, finds expression through how you live. And many of the the Zen dialogues, the koans, um, sound bewildering and baffling sometimes. They sound somehow irrational, uh, riddle-like. Not because they're deliberately trying to make you confused but because they are articulating an insight, articulating a question that resonates at this kind of existential pitch. And I think we can see this also as a way of understanding the quest of the Buddha himself, at least as we find it in the traditional legend of this young prince who goes out side of his palace one day and he encounters a sick person and a corpse and an old person and a monk and each time he encounters one of these things he experiences a deep questioning in the story he turns to his charioteer and he says does this happen to everybody and the charioteer says yes this is the human condition and it's these four sights, as they're sometimes called, that actually lead the young Gautama to then pursue a quest. In other words, they are ways of expressing what here we would call great doubt, and the awakening that Gautama subsequently experienced. About six years later, we can consider a great awakening <clears throat> because it was driven by the, the great doubt. You can't separate, as I understand it, this kind of uh, existential urgency of birth and death and life from the kind of resolution ...that is reached. Whereas if we just have little doubt... ...then that will create the circumstances for little insight. And again, little doesn't mean little in the sense of of not much... ...only a tiny amount. It's little in the sense of not operating at the same pitch... In other words, it's an intellectual doubt, a philosophical question. And if your questioning is framed intellectually or academically or scholarly, then it's very likely that whatever insight you gain will also be intellectual and academic and scholarly. That's what the word little means here. And finally, if you have no doubt, if you don't have any real questions at all, if life does not uh, lead you to engage with it as a questioning being, either existentially or philosophically, and you just muddle along day to day, um, maybe perfectly contented, but such a life is not one that will... Generate any great insight or revelation or enlightenment so this great doubt um, goes together with great faith which we spoke of as a condition of being ultimately concerned this great doubt is the willingness to be able to ultimately question to say what on earth is my life About What is this for? Or, as we've seen on this retreat, simply, what is this thing? How did it get here? Or simply, what is this? And then resting in the contemplative silence that follows and allowing yourself to be open to a possible response But without expecting anything, to be fully engaged with the question, for that to really be what matters. And if you get an insight or an answer or an enlightenment, that's great. But as long as you're expecting that or anticipating it, particularly if you have some preconceived idea from all the books you've read on Zen, it's going to get in the way. The word doubt might ring strangely for some of you. Um, doubt is an ambiguous word in English. It can sometimes simply mean vacillation. You know, should I do this or should I do that? A kind of basic uncertainty as to what you should do, what you should, how you should live. It's not that kind of doubt. That kind of doubt is actually an obstacle. It's one of the five hindrances in classical Buddhism. Um, the Tibetans have a good image for it. They say it's like trying to sew a piece of cloth with a two-pointed needle. In other words, you just jam. You can't get anywhere. So we have to distinguish between doubt, which is basically a kind of paralysis or stasis, in which we just can't make up our minds. Should I ask this question, or should I watch my breath, and you spend the whole time just bouncing back and forth, that is not really going to be very helpful. So the kind of doubt we're speaking of here is is not at all like that. Um, It's using the word doubt in a very different sense. And to make things a bit clearer, it might be useful not to use the word doubt, but rather as we've been using on this retreat, terms like perplexity, questioning, astonishment, and wonder. That, I think, for, for me at least, and maybe for you, somehow captures this kind of deep questioning. The other dimension of this questioning that is very important to bear in mind is that when you ask a question with real intensity and seriousness, you are tacitly acknowledging that you don't know something. So questioning or doubt or perplexity goes hand in hand. It's inseparable from um, not knowing, confusion, bewilderment. So if um, you ask a question like, where is Newton Abbott? That implies that you don't know where Newton Abbott is. If you did, the question would be meaningless. You wouldn't even ask it. So in this practice too, at some level, the not knowing, the acknowledgement of your own ignorance is crucial to being able to pose this question with utter sincerity. So when I say, what is this thing? How did it get here? In doing that, I open myself in a very, maybe vulnerable and um, an and, and unconditional way to the fact that I don't know what this is. I don't know who I am. I don't know how I got here. And as we continue in this practice, it's useful at times to replace the questioning, what is this, with its shadow underbelly, I don't know. And as we rest with what is this, we can also rest in I don't know and allow ourselves to feel that in the same kind of visceral embodied way now these ideas certainly are rooted in the Chinese uh, Chan or Song tradition and we can also you know, go back more into Indian Buddhism into the origins of Buddhism as with the story of the Buddha's um, renunciation and so on Uh, and we can see that um, this is a way of thinking that um, has clearly a continuity within Buddhism but it's also a way of thinking that we find in our own tradition in our western philosophical tradition And I'm going to give you some examples, um, not from Buddhist texts at all, but from um, the writings of Michel de Montaigne. Montaigne was a 16th century French nobleman, an essayist, a philosopher, a politician, who built himself a, a tower on his estate in the Dordogne, and devoted many, many years of his life to uh, introspection, to um, uh, writing, to thinking, to studying, to reading. And he comes to a position that's very, very similar to this. This is a passage from his essay called on presumption, on presumption. He says, I am very ignorant about what I am. I marvel at the assurance (coughs) and confidence people have of themselves. While there is hardly anything I know for sure and which... And which I could guarantee being able to do. Philosophy, he says, and again we have to be careful here. Philosophy for Montaigne doesn't mean academic philosophy as we might find it in a university department today. Philosophy is a practice for Montaigne. It's a way of life. Philosophy, he says, never plays a more beautiful game than when it counters our presumption and vanity. When it frankly recognises its own indecisiveness, weakness and ignorance. That's the indecisiveness, weakness and ignorance of philosophy itself. Philosophy here is being understood as an inquiry not a dogmatic assertion of certain truths. The wet nurse who breastfeeds the most delusive opinions, both public and private, is the inordinately good opinion one has of oneself. That's presumption. Whereas Montaigne says, I consider myself a typical sort of person, except in so far as I consider myself so. In other words, the typical sort of person doesn't consider herself as a typical sort of person. Typical sort of person considers themselves as something special. Montaigne says, I don't consider myself as special at all. And that's what makes me atypical. He goes on to explore what he understands by the practice of philosophy. He says, astonishment is the foundation of all philosophy. Inquiry is the way it advances and ignorance is its goal in other words not knowing but he uses the word ignorance ignorance not knowing astonishment is the foundation in other words again this resonates very well with what we're doing here to be astonished at the fact that we're here at all To allow our life to become a question for us. And that astonishment is a a bodily sense of finding oneself shocked and surprised. And that is what then triggers an inquiry, a questioning. That's the way we then develop our philosophy, is by taking this astonishment and probing it, enhancing it, refining it. In Zen they talk about cult, you know, developing the mass of doubt, the sensation of doubt, the coagulation of doubt. And ignorance is its goal. Now this might sound somewhat counterintuitive. Montaigne continues, he says, yes, There is a kind of ignorance that is powerful and generous and no less honourable or courageous than knowledge. He considers such ignorance to be his master form. In other words, he seeks to live his life in a full acknowledgement, moment to moment of the fact that he does not know who he is. He doesn't know what life is about. And that for him is where his philosophy is taking place. He's on the other hand puzzled by how most people when they think of, of mysteries and puzzles and what they're amazed about and wonder, wonder about, tends to concern what he calls just miracles and strange events. And he also notes that such mir- miraculous and strange things always seem to hide themselves as soon as I appear. <laughs> In other words, we hear all these stories about, you know, monks levitating or people reading other people's minds or... Whatever it might be. And yet, weirdly, they're always related, one step removed from me. I've, I've noticed this too. I've heard many Buddhist monks and lamas and so on talk about all the quasi-miraculous things that they've heard about. You'll almost always find that it's not them who saw these things. It's my teacher or my friend. Or in this text it says... It's always deferred one point away from them. But that's actually a kind of idolatry, to think that mystery and wonder have to do with specifically strange and unusual things and events. That's what we tend to be fascinated by. But in doing so, by making the mysterious and the strange and the wonderful um, particular moments in space and time that are considered to be miraculous or unusual, we miss the biggest mystery of all. This is how Montaigne expresses this. He says, I have seen nothing more weird or miraculous than myself. (laughs) Over time, we may get used to strange things, But the more I probe myself and know myself, the more my oddity astonishes me, (laughs) and the less I understand who I am. Now, this, I think, is probably a sentiment that we might share in doing this kind of meditation. And I've certainly found this over the years that the the more that I probe myself and ask myself, you know, what is this that's going on? The more my oddity, my strangeness becomes apparent. And not necessarily when we're sitting on a cushion here. In fact, I tend to find that it's at odd moments in the day Sometimes when I've got nothing like this on my mind at all and suddenly I find myself somehow just stopped in my tracks at the sheer weirdness of myself, of being here, of being conscious, of other people, of whatever's going on. It's a moment of, a sort of a moment of shock. It may not last long. But it has a very strong impact, I find. These moments when our familiar uh, opinions and views and perceptions are suddenly thrown into question. Following this, Montaigne quotes Socrates, who he considers the wisest man that ever lived. And when Socrates was once asked what he knew, he replied, all I know is that I know nothing. So Socrates is again a fairly good authority on most matters philosophical, and yet he acknowledges that he knows nothing, that he too dwells in this ignorance, this unknowing. And such unknowing is not a failure that we need to somehow correct by acquiring more information and knowledge and understanding and read all the right books and so on. This kind of ignorance, as Montaigne says, is powerful and generous and no less honourable or courageous than knowledge. In other words, this this, this radical honesty, this capacity to openly admit that we don't know, is something courageous, it's something generous, and it's something arguably deeply wise and true. And it also opens up infinite possibilities. As soon as we're attached to an opinion, or a view, or a belief, We're actually limiting what we can potentially know. Because it's already decided in advance. You know, I know this and I believe that. That's a kind of closure that might give us a degree of security perhaps. But it somehow undermines our capacity to be astonished. Montaigne, of course, acknowledges that strangeness is not just restricted to oneself. He says, just consider the fog through which we have to grope in order to comprehend the very things we hold in our hands. In other words, everyday objects. A cup of tea. It's, it's the it's familiarity, he says, rather than knowledge that takes away their strangeness. In other words, if we'd never seen a cup of tea before ever, it would be the weirdest thing. Once we get used to it, and of course this means used to pretty much everything that we are dealing with in our daily lives these things are no longer strange they're uninteresting they're a bit boring it's not that that um, uh, that our, our sense of being comfortable with them is the result of knowing deeply what they are it's just that we've got used to them it's become a habit it's become normative it doesn't surprise us anymore And immediately after this comment, Montaigne uh, cites the Epicurean philosopher Lucretius. And he cites a passage from Lucretius that I've always greatly loved. And I was extremely happy to find Montaigne quoting the same text. Lucretius, by the way, was a Roman philosopher of the first century B.C., And uh, he's only known because one work of poetry called On the Nature of Things, De Natura Rerum, um, has come down to us, luckily. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. In this poem, Lucretius poses a thought experiment. He says, Suppose these things were suddenly shown to people For the first time, these things meaning the night sky, the trees, the planets, but of course for Montaigne it could just be what we hold in our hand now, anything. Suppose these things were suddenly shown to people for the first time. What could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had imagined could even exist? Whereas now, Lucretius notices, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the sparkling firmament, the heavens. They are so familiar with the sky. It's become so much taken for granted that it loses its power to surprise us. Now I think this has a great deal to do with what we're practising here. We're cultivating this questioning, this doubt, this perplexity, and at times it might seem tedious and boring and we can't quite get the point of it and we'd rather be doing something else. It is a discipline. It's a training. And it's not necessarily going to produce results straight away because it is gradually and systematically eroding our sense of the familiar it's chipping away at our certainties not just our conceptual certainties but our convictions that this is a chair and this is a tape recorder and this is a a clock things that we are so familiar with we can no longer be surprised by them. This process of of asking what is this in a contemplative and in a quasi-physical way has as its purpose the, the breaking down, the wearing away of the veneer of familiarity about ourselves, about others, about the world and that's the reason why if we're to you know, make use of such a practice we have to keep at it we have to keep working at it Why Zhang spent 8 years in the monastery now when Montaigne uh, starts to um, consider Uh, the roots of this kind of thinking, he goes back to the Greek philosophical school called scepticism. Now again, the word sceptical in our everyday language today has come to mean something quite different to what it meant for the Greeks. If we say, oh, you're so sceptical. What a sceptic. Basically someone who's not really prepared to take anything seriously. But the word sceptic comes from the Greek "skepsis," which means to inquire. It means to analyse, it means to question. So the sceptic is a person who never stops questioning. In other words, if we do this, what is this practice? We are sceptics, in the real sense of the word not the uh, rather popular cliched sense. For a life to more and more become one of curiosity, inquiry, examination, puzzlement, rather than a continual reiteration of our views and opinions. That is the practice of Zen. It is also the practice of skepticism. And this kind of scepticism also, I feel, is very close to what the Buddha called Samadhiti, usually translated as right view. That's a bit of a digression. I'm not going to go down that track. The founder of scepticism was a man called Piro, who, was a, who accompanied Alexander to India, and in the Greek records is recorded as having studied with Indian sages so possibly he picked up some of these ideas there but there's, adic- but there's sufficient evidence that this way of thinking was already present in Greek thought uh, particularly in, in the teachings of a man called Democritus in any case Pyrrho came back from India and began to teach what is now called Pyrronian scepticism. And one of the few passages of text that has come down to us is, is, uh, is, is this one. Um, Pyrrho declared that things are equally indifferent, unmeasurable and undecidable. Neither our sensations nor our opinions tell us truths or falsehoods. We should not put the slightest trust in them, but we should be without judgment, without preference and unwavering, saying about each thing that it no more is than is not, or both is and is not, or neither is or is not. This is called the quadrilemma. Sorry, the tetralemma. The the four logical possibilities. Is, is not, both is and is not, neither is and is not. Which we find in Buddhism, early Buddhism too, Nagarjuna. In other words, language, um, sense experience, uh, judgment, none of these are capable of grasping and apprehending the... uh, The the stuff of experience itself, life itself. Life itself cannot be reduced to these, uh, these categories. You can't say it is, you can't say it's not, you can't say it's both, you can't say it's neither. And once you've exhausted those options, you are left in a state of questioning, of puzzlement, of perplexity, of doubt, of great doubt. The text continues, the result for those who adopt this attitude will first be speechlessness. In other words, the mind will stop, we won't be able to say anything, we'll be struck, dumb. And then ataraxia, an untroubled mind. The aim of this philosophical practice is to lead us to... Ataraxia. Ataraxia is non-troubledness. Very similar to nirvana. The absence of greed and hatred and confusion. So this kind of questioning is not just an intellectual exercise for the sake of just asking questions. It has a practical and therapeutic goal. If we ask these questions in the way that we're posing them on this retreat, for example, they can serve to bring our minds to a stop and leave us in a state of peace. And this is the kind of peace, the kind of um, uh, well-being that Montaigne seeks to achieve. Montaigne maintains, and I'm quoting him here, no other invention of the human mind has as much validity and utility as Pyrrhonism, this ancient sceptical philosophy. No other invention of the human mind is as valid and useful as this. It's quite a strong statement. Because Pyrrhonism, he says, presents man naked, empty and aware of his natural weakness. The professed aim of Pyrrhonists, says Montaigne, is to shake things up, to doubt, to inquire, to be certain of nothing, to vouch for nothing. Again, that sounds rather familiar, right? To doubt, to inquire, to be certain of nothing, to vouch for nothing. But he realises that this is not terribly easy to grasp or understand. Whoever can imagine a perpetual confession of ignorance, an unbiased judgement in each and every situation, can conceive of what Pironian philosophy is. A perpetual confession of ignorance. In other words, a constant acknowledgement of, I don't know what this is. And, uh, and that leads to an unbiased judgment. In other words, if you genuinely don't know, uh, if you don't have any strong opinions about It means that when you are called upon to make a decision or a choice you start with a balanced, unprejudiced mind. There are ethical corollaries of this. This is how Montaigne describes ataraxia, the untroubled mind. He says it's a peaceful and settled way of life, unagitated by the pressure of opinions and the knowledge we pretend to have of things, which gives birth to fear, avarice, envy, immoderate desires, ambition, pride, superstition, love of novelty, rebellion, disobedience opinionatedness as well as most of our bodily ills again it sounds very similar to these old Buddhist lists of all the bad things that happen if you're egotistical or attached or whatever Montaigne also acknowledges that skepticism can best be conceived as a question now the question for Montaigne wasn't what is this it was cursege what do i know what know i what do i know cursege that was his quadre his koan. he had it inscribed uh, these words inscribed beneath his emblem his heraldic emblem <clears throat> which was a pair of scales right a pair of scales equally balanced without preference without prejudice without bias in that equanimous settled balanced mind you can then ask with honesty and sincerity what do i know in pyranism this state of mind is called epoche which means suspension of judgment putting aside all the views and opinions that you have and resting in a balanced state and again this is exactly what we're doing here albeit coming from a tradition that has its roots in China and India it's exactly the same we're trying to establish an equanimous balanced settled mind in which we then pose the question what is this? Now somebody else was interested in an untroubled mind and that was our friend Agnes Martin she wrote a number of short pieces kind of prose poems which is a bit difficult to get hold of The most famous one is called The Untroubled Mind. Uh, You can find it on an internet search. It's, It's available. This is how she phrases it in the text itself. She says, being detached and impersonal is related to freedom. That's the answer for inspiration. The untroubled mind. Now Agnes Martin also sought to cultivate this state of mind both in terms of living as a hermit up on a mesa outside Santa Fe and latterly in her life in Taos but she also formally practiced meditation 20 minutes twice a day in order to still the mind so that her inspirations would be given the open free space to appear. There's an interview on YouTube um, which she gave when she was 85 years old and um, she announces there that she stopped meditating because she has finally learned how to stop thinking. (laughs) she says I used to meditate until I learned how to stop thinking and then she goes on and I'm quoting she says now I don't think of anything nothing goes through my mind I don't have any ideas myself and I don't believe anybody else's either (laughs) so that leaves me a clear mind gosh Yes, an empty mind. So that when something comes into it, you can see it. The final lines of uh, her essay, The Untroubled Mind, read, We seem to be winning and losing, but in reality, there is no losing. The wiggle of a worm is as important as the assassination of a president. If we go back to Montaigne, and again, it's, it's interesting how these different figures from completely different contexts, uh, we've been in China, we've been in India, we've been in New Mexico, we've been in 16th century France, And we find the same currents of ideas playing themselves out in remarkably similar language. For Montaigne, Pyrrhonism is not just about revealing the human being as naked, empty and aware of his natural weakness. That's not enough for Montaigne. For him... Ataraxia is the stepping stone to something else. And this is how he puts it. Stripped of human knowledge, man is all the more suited for the divine to dwell within him. Annihilating his intellect in order to make more room for faith, he is suited to receive mysterious powers from on high. And such a person is humble, obedient, trainable and studious. He is freed from the vain and irreligious opinions of false sects, read Protestants. (laughs) He is a blank sheet ready for the finger of God to inscribe on him whatever it pleases. This is not the Montaigne you come across in most books on Montaigne. Montaigne was a deeply religious man. This is not just written to make the church happy. For him, this uh, letting go of opinions and views, this resting in ataraxia, opens you to the grace of God in his language. Now here too we find an interesting parallel in Zen, in Zen Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism more generally as well. In other words, you'll find in some Zen texts, um, there is just the idea of casting off opinions and views and certainties, emptying the mind, clearing the mind and that's all that is said there's another whole tradition in Zen in which the clearing away of all of this mental clutter opens you up to what they call the Buddha nature or the universal mind or something similar to that which is really just another way of speaking about God, in other words something that Infinitely transcends us and yet has a power, a presence that can be felt that can be revealed once we learn to, to stop being preoccupied with me and mine and what I like and what I dislike and my views and opinions the idea that you clear this away and then you open yourself up to the grace of God in Christianity or you open yourself up to the presence of the Buddha nature or the unconditioned or the Dhamma Dhatu, or Rigpa uh, in Buddhism so you find both in Christianity, you find in Buddhism this same struggle really my own take on this is that holding on to ideas like God or Buddha nature is the mind's last ditched attempt to hold on to something rather than nothing. It's somehow consoling and comforting. At the same time, it's also very much the experience of people who do these practices that when they get to a point where the mind stops, it does feel as though they open themselves up for something more, something greater to become present. But whether we need to name that as God or Buddha nature, I feel is probably unnecessary. In a sense, what we open ourselves up to is life itself in all of its wonder and mystery and glory. And in this point I'm with Spinoza, who talks of Deus Sive Natura, God, that is to say, nature. I feel we can understand what these mystics and others are saying in an entirely naturalistic language today by emptying our minds of our opinions and views and habits and so on we expose ourselves to the wonder of nature itself the natural world similarly we find this idea in Agnes Martin. She had a theory that society and our social conditioning is what effectively programs us to um, become good citizens uh, and so forth and so on but the price we pay is that we cut ourselves off from the mystery of life. We cut ourselves off from an untroubled mind. And thereby part of what we're doing in a contemplative practice like this is a process of deconditioning. It's not a process of just undoing um, some of these deep instinctive conditionings that, like ignorance and desire and hatred, which are the results probably of our biological evolution. But for Agnes and others, it's about also undoing social conditioning that have programmed us to think and behave and feel and believe in a particular way. She feels that small children... She worked as a primary school teacher before she became an artist. She felt that small children are the most susceptible to what she calls inspiration because their minds are untroubled by society. That society seeks to socialize them in school, preschool, playgrounds. Whereas for her, and I'm quoting here, the little child sitting alone, perhaps even neglected or forgotten, is the one open to inspiration and the development of sensibility. As we grow older, she says, Moments of inspiration become rarer. The mind becomes cluttered with thoughts, ideas, calculations and ambitions that obscure what she calls the sublime, absolute perfection of life that is present in each moment if only we were able to stop and see it, experience it. So that's all I want to say about great doubt. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.